Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Just on Friday morning, a group of refugee supporters barricaded the entrance to Customs House at 1010 Latrobe Street, Docklands, where the Australian Border Force is headquartered. The action was in support of refugees and asylum seekers on Manus Island, who have barricaded themselves into the Immigration Detention Centre since its closure on October 31st. Gabrielle De Vitri is part of the Artist Committee within the Whistleblowers, Activists and Citizens Alliance, and she joins us to talk about this unique action. Good morning, Gab. Hi there, how are you going? Yeah, good. Um, so, Gab, describe the scene to us from Friday morning. Um, what did it look like? Uh, how effective was so, it? So, we barricaded the entrances to the building of Australian Border Force for the whole business day. We shut down business on Friday. Um, we had a huge uh, pile of suburban hard rubbish that pretty much covered the front entrance and the back entrance. And then about 150 people came to then blockade those barricades. Um, and as you said, it's in support of the men who have been barricading themselves inside the detention centres and who have been protesting for 105 days now um, for their freedom in on Manus Island, um, for be, to, to be resettled safely um, and to stop being tortured by Australian border force. So just uh, elaborate a little bit on what is forming the barricade. You said you went around and collected hard rubbish. Are we talking all over Melbourne? Who did that? Um, how, how were the logistics of that? So um, basically it was a, a private Facebook event. We asked people for their hard rubbish to create a barricade um, for men, the men on Manus um, and hundreds of people replied and so people from all around the inner suburbs of Melbourne donated their junk to create this kind of like mound of couches, cabinets, old bikes, um, play equipment, crates. It's kind of a bit of a monument to our consumerism, I guess. Fantastic. Um, as, well as, a, as well as a demonstration of solidarity. Yeah, it's a, you're kind of performing a wonderful dual service, I must say, both removing hard rubbish, putting it to good use, and um, putting pressure on uh, these inhumane uh, behaviours of our government and Border Force. Tell me, Gab, how did the employees from Border Force react uh, when they arrived on Friday morning to see their place of work um, blockaded and, and such a statement about the work that they are doing on behalf of the Australian government? So there are a few people at the beginning who got quite kind of upset about not being let into work. Um, I can't imagine being that desperate to go to work if you work for Australian Border Force, but 
Um, so there are some people that really tried to push their way in, but other than that, people stood back. Um, they hung around for a while to try and see if um, police would try and force us to, to take down the, the barricade or to force a line through. But um, effectively, people just hung around for an hour and, and then decided to leave, and I hope they had the day off. Um, there were already some people working inside, and, of course, they were free to leave. We let them out via an emergency exit, but we made sure that nobody re-entered the building. So, um, yeah, we, we definitely weren't into um, blocking people inside, um, so everyone was, was safe. And how was the uh, inevitable police presence at this particular action? Have you had any uh, trouble with the boys in blue? I think the um, interactions with police was pretty peaceful and um, respectful. Um, they stuck around for the whole day while we were there, tried to kind of uh, convince us to move on, but it was surprisingly peaceful. Well, that's great. So no um, yeah. confrontations or anything like that? No, I mean, everyone who attended was um, uh, there in the spirit of nonviolence um, and in the spirit of disruption as well. So peaceful but disruptive. And did you have any good chats with uh, people passing on the street or, um, you know, how did, how did the general public react to this event, do you think? Uh, I had quite a few chats with the workers who were, um, who were, who were hanging around and they, uh, it was important, I think, to let them um, know while we were there and to have that communication and they seemed, um, they seemed to understand while we were there. We had a lot of people um, driving past and beeping their horns in solidarity. We had some people who walked past in the morning on their way to work and came and joined us during their lunch break. So, um, in general, there's been a, a fair bit of support for what we're doing. Now, it's a wonderful idea, the barricade. Where did the idea come from? How did that come about? From Manus Island. Ah. <laughs> um, I think that it's, you know, it kind of came to us because that thing, that's what they're doing there and I think that it was a demonstration of solidarity um, to kind of replicate that form at Australian Border Force to kind of use the form of what they're doing there um, to communicate that message here. So you've had some uh, a lot of success uh, recently, some great actions that have garnered quite a bit of media attention, uh, the covering of Picasso's Weeping Woman at NGV, the cellist outside Parliament, now this blockade. What's next yeah. from WACA and the Artists' Committee? Well, we're certainly not going to um, to stand back. We're going to continue to put pressure on the Australian government until this inhumane policy um, is abandoned and until these people are resettled safely. Um, I can't reveal details, but definitely watch this space. And how can people get involved if they'd like to join in in the future? Um, join us. On, like join our Facebook pages so there's WACA, the Whistleblowers um, Activists and Citizens Alliance and there's the Artists Committee as well so we kind of have worked together and, and this barricade today was composed of both those groups as well as um, broader groups and also just you know concerned citizens um, grassroots community um, groups who are at a loss as to what we can do next to try and end this policy.
And just a final one, Gab, how effective do you think the activism around this issue is becoming? It feels as though, and perhaps it's because of the, the horrors that are coming out of Manus, I mean, even News Corp, traditionally not very sympathetic to the plight of refugees, mm-hmm. are starting to publish photographs of the unfinished new facilities and, um, you know, put a bit of pressure on Dutton and others. How effective do you think mm-hmm. this activism is, is being at the moment? Do you, do you feel like we're, we're, we're near a breakthrough? I think that this week has been amazing for the amount of community outrage and the expression of that community outrage from the Australian public, and I think that it's absolutely essential to be um, demonstrating that in a in a in the way that we have been. You know, we've tried rallies, we've tried lobbying, and those things uh, are not enough now. People are being tortured, people are uh, are dying, and so um, yeah, stepping it up in the way that we are doing is the only way now and I think that it's having a lot of effect and I think Dutton is um, feeling it. So I think we should keep it up. Yeah, look, thank you so much, Gab, and uh, thanks for the words of inspiration. Uh, Keep up the good work and uh, see you around. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor The New International Bookshop for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. Featuring over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different modified sports and watch a disabled water skiing demonstration. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Friday the 1st of December from 10am to 3pm at Crown Riverwalk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. So, um, we're joined now in the studio by um, the organisers of Eight Days of Solidarity for Refugees. Um, at the moment, it seems like all eyes are on Manus Island, where 400 refugees and asylum seekers continue their silent protests against eviction into danger. And on Nauru, more than 300 refugees and asylum seekers are still detained in conditions compared to a concentration camp by former workers. Meanwhile, here on the Australian mainland, refugees and asylum seekers have been detained for up to eight years in immigration detention, supposedly whilst their status is assessed and visas are issued. To mark eight years of detention and counting, ex-detainees and others have united in a campaign of eight days of solidarity for refugees. Starting yesterday, this is an open invitation to show solidarity with those whom Australia has chosen to imprison for seeking refuge. Mm. Today in the studio, our, guest is, uh, our guests uh, include a former detainee and the organisers for eight days of solidarity, who for reasons of privacy have asked for their names to be withheld. Uh, thank you for joining us in studio. Thank you. No problem. Hello. Um, so, first of all, it might be worth reminding those listening um, of the conditions in which um, refugees and asylum seekers are being held in Australia. Um, we spoke to the Af- um, Australian Refugee Council about the difficulty in visiting um, um, people in detention, so it's rare for the wider community to have any insight into conditions of places like Meta in Broadmeadows and Villawood Detention Centre. Um, can you give us an idea of what it was like in detention? Mm. That's a kind of uh, prison. So mm. 24 hours, security camera. Mm. And everywhere we can see a security card also. So they are watching uh, 24 hours, uh, two shift. They come and change two shift uh, staff. They come and fresh staff. They come and watch us every time. Yeah. And uh, also we can keep some uh, limited things only in, uh, with, uh, with us in our room. Just pillow and 
met us some some that kind of things also we can't keep uh, much things any any item even water bottle or mobile phone we not allowed to mobile phone in a detention area yeah that's a uh, to limited things yeah and so i imagine um one of like of, of course it's generally unpleasant to be in one of these centers but there's also a sense of isolation that you have from not being allowed mobile phones and things like that and so there's value in things like the eight days of solidarity for refugees um so it's it's an initiative led in part by extatanies can you tell us what uh, it would have meant for you to hear messages of solidarity and support like eight days of solidarity for refugees yeah um did the, uh, we are thinking about all, all our the refugees mm. but especially in uh, melbourne mm. um they are locked up nearly 8 years mm. in australia so that's a, a very hard situation for them and this, through this uh, eight days solidarity we bring them some news from this community so most of the australian people don't know uh, in what happened in in melbourne or in australia some detainee situation so that's a uh, we are focusing bring them their news outside of uh, detention there and through this uh, solidarity we giving some uh, hope to them uh, we are thinking you we doing something and some with this community people yeah that's fantastic so um eight days of solidarity has actually already started there was a there was an event yesterday can you tell us what happened i uh, yesterday uh, we had a picnic at the city um, at flagstaff gardens yeah um, that's a we uh, they gathered uh, we gathering uh, for on behalf of them uh, we think about them we talk about them and we make a lot of uh, banners uh, for next uh, day seven for yeah that's a good gathering for us um, and there's also people who were also in detention who attended so it was an open invite for people to attend uh and also when we're talking about people who have been in detention it's people who, there's a lot of people who've been in who are in detention for a long time so three years four years five years and the longest is eight years so it's mm-hmm. about everyone and including the people on manus and naru as well because they've all been in there for you know nearly 4 years more than 4 years so that's also quite a long time absolutely may i ask how long you spent in detention yourself uh, nearly 6 years i've been locked up in in australia mm. Mm. so i've visited mytor a few times yeah. and obviously it's a really challenging place to be in i met a man there the other day who'd only been in for 3 weeks due to a kind of clerical error by mm-hmm. the australian authorities um and he was distraught after just 3 weeks and it made me realize that the men who've been in there for 4 5 6 years who when you visit them show such incredible grace and courage and bravery you know and stoicness and i i just wanted to ask you've been out now for some time which is which is great um but can you describe how do you feel after four or five years in in detention what was your mood like um you know after so long in there what do- um i last uh, six years when i was detention there i um looked through the australia tv tv television and when i was uh, brought me to detention a lot of uh, local uh, australian they come and visit us so through these people only we 
I saw our, our friends so they Australia mm. what is in out, outside and what's the building or area situation you know a lot of question we ask through them mm. so when I get out from so my uh, you know the la, such a long time I locked up mm. so uh, quick action and something I lost so my life are uh, backward six years so I, I feel ah uh, I not live I seem like I sleep on in a home stage like your life is on hold yeah on pause yeah. for six so, years yeah, yeah six years I, I, I nothing I did so uh, after release I little bit running faster I feel I want to run I want to run so that's I did I doing and I did oh good I'm glad run <laughs> well I think it might be worth um, going over the the program of the um, the eight days of solidarity campaign Uh, we heard about the picnic yesterday. What's happening today? So today is No One Is Illegal Solidarity Day. So No One Is Illegal is a, a campaign or a movement or whatever word you like to use that started in Germany through an art exhibition. And it's just saying that no one is illegal. I guess it's quite a simple message and it's quite a strong um, campaign in, in other countries, mm. which is just to, to be supporting people who are at risk of deportation, who are in detention and such things like this, just showing that no one's illegal. It doesn't matter about having papers or how you arrive somewhere. It's so, such a dehumanising thing to say about someone, isn't it, to brand their yeah. being illegal. And you know, especially here where you know, it's legal to seek asylum, but still people are labelled as being illegal. Mm. So it's such a, yeah, it's such a strong, strong negative message to people. So that's something that we've done so that all people can participate. People have a lot of friends overseas in other places where they can't um, attend events, so I thought this would be a good sort of thing to do where lots of people can take photos you can make banners you can i don't, I don't know make make some yeah, uh, some yeah. bake or something and right no one is illegal <laughs> how do well, you know whatever people would like to do and how can pe- people share um what they've made with the eight days of solidarity campaign uh, so there's a facebook page but you can also look on the wordpress which is eight days of solidarity for refugees dot wordpress dot com <laughs> and we've got an email there and it also links up to the facebook page yeah and we'll have all the links on our web page um now there are heaps of events happening and we won't really have time to talk about them all even though we'd love to Um, But one that's worth pointing out is uh, happening tomorrow here at 3CR. Can you tell us what's happening? So there's going to be an art mural on the side of the building. Uh, So, yep, on that that side on Little Victoria Street. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, just off Smith Street. Yep. Yep. And and so from 12 o'clock, we're going to be reproducing an artwork by a man who's in detention, but also people are welcome to join and do their own artwork or contribute in whatever way they can as well. That's awesome. fantastic. So mm-hmm. definitely turn up to that one. That's tomorrow from 12, you said. Yeah. And that's happening here at 21 Smith Street um, in Fitzroy. So come down to 3CR, mm. join in and, um, um, and show your solidarity for people being held in um, immigration detention. Um, it's also worth mentioning Friday's event. There's uh, a vigil happening. Is that right? Yeah. So there's an eight-hour vigil that's also going to start at 12, 12 until 8. Uh, so that vigil slash action is going to join the Manus rally at 530 if that will be on, which it likely will be, Hmm. Uh, just to also be showing solidarity with the crew on Manus as well, who are part of the campaign. Right, that's great. And so people should definitely turn up to that as as well and bring along the banners that you make today. So if you get get time today, 
make those banners, send pictures in by all means, but also come along on Friday and bring them with you. Definitely. Um, and and make make your voices heard on this, this very important uh, issue that's basically at the the moral conscious conscience of australia like mm. we, need a, we need an answer to this mm-hmm. exactly. um so so again the website is eight days of solidarity for refugees and that's the number eight yeah. days of solidarity for refugees dot wordpress.com yeah and um you've also got a, a facebook page so i imagine people just look up eight days of solidarity for refugees they'll be able yeah, to find you folks exactly and okay. um also as we briefly mentioned about visiting people in detention there's a section on the wordpress which also talks about that mm. where people can get linked in to come and visit people because it, it's not too difficult you just need a bit of a helping hand mm. to be able to come and visit sure okay mm. Fantastic. So um, thank you both for coming in. We've been speaking to the organisers of Eight Days of Solidarity for Refugees. Started yesterday and you can take part today. Um, write, make a banner, send it in to, mm-hmm. to the email address on that website that we told you just now. And um, you're listening to Monday Breakfast. Today on Over the Wall, we talk about the outsourcing of Centrelink call centre facilities as a contracted job to Serco, a private corporation which have currently run over 50% of Australian immigration detention centres. My name is Lisa Newman, I'm the Deputy National President of the CPSU. Human Services Minister Alan Tudge on your website, it says, has announced Serco Citizen Services will begin operating a Centrelink call centre. 250 full-time equivalent staff and your unions called upon Malcolm Turnbull to reverse this decision and give the Department of Human Services more funding so it can employ people to do the job. Could you talk about why this is important? The Department of Human Services touches the lives of every Australian at least once and if there is a failure in service delivery standards in the department, it can have dramatic effects on social cohesion. So uh, we think this is a department that has an absolute need for investment and rather than selling 250 jobs to a foreign-owned multinational, we would have much preferred the government and still seek it that the government invest in Australian public servants and the uh, public services that they deliver to their communities. We certainly think that the decisions that have been made in DHS run against the trend. We don't see any rationale or justification for selling this work to external private sector providers and certainly not uh, the kind of uh, contracts that Serco have won. There is just no justification for it and essentially what it's doing is transferring taxpayer funds to a foreign multinational corporation that has a track record of poor service delivery and minimising tax paid to the Australian government. Lisa Newman from the Community and Public Sector Union continued to explain the specific area that Serco contracts would take up inside Centrelink departments. The CERCO contract is to do very transactional work, so they're not going to be dealing with the work that resolves issues that members of the community contact the department to be resolved. And, in fact, 
it was only three weeks ago that it was announced by the department that they would be selling up to a thousand positions to labour hire company going in to support their compliance area, which is the area that manages the robo debt activity. So it is bad decision piled on bad decision. The reality is that staffing levels continue to drop and the demand on services by the community increases. So those two things run contrary to each other and they need to be resolved. And the way to do that is by permanent jobs that not only provide services, but they allow workers to put economic and social roots into the communities that they live and work in. And we've got a department that is the biggest department in the APS that has offices in over 600 sites. So people need to be able to be assured that they can get through and get access to the, the services that they need when they need them. At the moment, staffing levels don't allow that to occur. And you mentioned in your answer social consequences. What do you think some of them may be? Look, every time there is a service failure and thousands upon thousands of Australians having debts raised against their name that were in error and that was completely unacceptable consequence of a process where its design had been progressed on the basis of falling staff numbers. So there is no shortcutting the stuff. You need people to actually assist members of the community and meet their needs in the services that DHS delivers. So that's what needs to happen and that's what we will continue to lobby and campaign for. Because in regard to robo-debts, the automated debt notices sent by Centrelink to clients, there's been experienced Centrelink staff who've been working in the robo-debt squads and and they're losing the jobs and the, the Turnbull government slashed more than 5,000 permanent jobs from the Department of Human Services. And the people that will pay the price for that ultimately will be members of the Australian community and the Australian taxpayer. The staff that see these decisions are completely disenfranchised because they have essentially been told by this government that it is okay for their wages to be frozen for four years, which is what their wage negotiations have taken. And now, after that long outstanding issue has been concluded, they now get these announcements that the government is selling the work that they do to the private sector, and it is simply not good enough. And there's been the recent Senate review in in two areas, such as robo-debt. These changes by the government, do you think it's a positive or or negative response to the Senate review findings? Negative response. I think when you keep applying a year-upon-year budget cut to an agency like DHS, instead of investing in its infrastructure and people, you are going to have consequences for those decisions and those service failures that have been detailed and documented through the recent Senate inquiry are case in point. As long as the government, any government, thinks that it can demand service delivery but not pay for it through good investment and good tools and technology, we're going to have problems. And there seems to be a contrast to whether the government's actually been investing more in defence 
but cutting in Centrelink spending. Uh, what do you think the agenda is there? Well, defence is an interesting case in point because uh, essentially what uh, has happened in defence is that their use of external contractors has ballooned and mushroomed under this government to the extent that the department and the government are recognising that they have to bring work back in-house. And And what do you see the future regarding duty of care for clients of Centrelink working with Serco staffing of Centrelink? We're really concerned about it. We know that Serco has been in the news in its other areas of interest with the Australian government and also overseas in relation to the services that they deliver. Well, they actually are contracted to run approximately half of the immigration detention centres. That's exactly right. And you don't need to look much further for any level of controversy there. They are a for-profit company. They make their profit by dropping the cost of service delivery and they do that through paying staff less and we know that that the Serco wages that are being offered for DHS work are just over half of the pay rate for an APS4 in the public service. So they're making their money off low wages and lowering service standards and that's not somewhere where our government needs to go. We're looking at cost-cutting by government and cutting of service standards in phones. This sourcing of, of response to calls to Centrelink to this private call centre operator in Serco designed to make call response times look better statistically and, and could you describe this and what also what the reality is for people trying to speak to an actual person, a staff member? Look, there have been problems with unanswered calls for years and casuals would pick up uh, a phone call out of a queue and then the timer on that call would start again and the person would simply be dropped into another queue and that was a way that um, the department could essentially manipulate its key performance indicators on call wait times. We've known that that has been the case for years and this year the penny finally dropped with the government. So. These systems are manipulated by governments and by agencies in some cases and primarily just to mask the fact that there are not enough staff to take the calls that their department's receiving. So the Drum Youth Services have uh, gone live with a new show called Youth Homelessness Podcast, which is led by young people who have lived experience of homelessness, and the podcast will tackle the many intersecting ways that young people are marginalised while experiencing homelessness and looking for ways out. Um, we can also look forward to stories, insight, and advice shared by young people and queer experts, uh, sorry, peer experts, um, although we'll hear queer voices, which is fantastic, um, all on the subject of youth homelessness. Uh, today we're joined by one of the producers and voices of the podcast, youth homelessness activist Kohava Liliet. Uh, welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Um, so, first of all, one of the great things about the Youth Homelessness Podcast, um, um, which is a great listen, by the way, um, is that it's a peer-led project. Can you tell us what that means and why it's important? Peer-led project means that the project was led and designed and implemented by the group that it's talking about. So, young people with experience 
terms of familiarity with homelessness. And it's important because it means that the voices and views being expressed are genuinely reflecting the understanding that's coming from the group involved. But too often we'll have projects led by people who don't have that kind of lived experience. And even if they're interviewing people who do, those views still then get filtered through their interpretation and their understanding. A peer-led project means that the final decisions are being made by the people who were most affected. Fantastic. And so um, sort of in that in that spirit, um, I'd like to talk about maybe your experiences as an activist in this space. What other advocacy experiences contribute to your work in the youth homelessness space? So I'm one of the volunteers at Ygender, which is a peer-led trans youth advocacy organisation. And there's a lot of intersection between the homelessness advocacy sector and the queer and trans advocacy sectors because queer and trans young people are disproportionately much more likely to uh, be homeless and often have a much harder time accessing existing services. That's, and it's great that you're bringing um, sort of your, your experience and your, um, your activism to, to this podcast. Um, speaking of which, how did the podcast come about? How did you come to be involved? Uh, so the podcast was a project led by a couple of the Drums Youth Peer Leaders. So Drum Street hires a group of young people to lead projects about young people and for young people. And a couple of, of those young peer leaders decided to put on a podcast to increase understanding of, of homelessness and how it affects young people. And so they put up a site for applications to be on the other podcast, expressions of interest, and I found about it that way. And it's important to note that, yeah, um, you you are being paid for your expertise, um, which is something that's kind of quite quite rare when it comes to um, to um, sort of projects like this, where people who are you know peer led projects, basically, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's often a lot harder for peer led projects to get funding. Mm. There can be a tendency to not quite trust. Young people are people whose experience comes from lived experience to have that knowledge. So the fact that the Jumps Project had this funding that they were willing and able to pay us to be involved and to pay the people editing the podcast and designing the project, this was really important. And it's moving away from that exploitative model and recognizing that lived experience is a form of expertise. Absolutely. That's such a great point to make. Um, so uh, let's let's dive into the actual content of the podcast. I do want people to listen to the podcast, and everyone does, but um, but maybe it's worth talking about the um, the topics of the first one. It's a bit of an introduction to um, to what's coming in the Youth Homelessness podcast. Uh, I won't ask you to go through all of the issues, but what are the biggest obstacles for youth experiencing homelessness that were covered in the episode? We talked a lot about how young people's experience of homelessness often doesn't quite match up with people's idea of a stereotypical homeless person, that when people think homelessness, they think someone who's living on the streets full-time, and that's certainly one experience of homelessness, and there are some young people who have that, but it can also often mean couch surfing at a different friend's house every couple of days or moving between 
being on the streets and maybe being able to be around family some of the time, but not being welcome there always or not being safe there always. And so a lot of the time, especially for young people and queer people, it can look more like insecure access to any kind of permanent shelter as opposed to permanently being in, in the streets and how that kind of understanding can offer and lead young people to not but have as much access to support services as they otherwise would have. We also talked about how a lot of existing homelessness services are run by Christian groups, and some of those groups are doing fantastic work, and if their faith inspires them to support people, that's great. But some of those groups can be quite toxic, have sometimes refused to support a young or homeless person because they know that they're queer or have sometimes made their support conditional upon being pressured into religious rituals or contexts that they're not comfortable with. And for queer young people, that can be especially distressing and difficult when those religious spaces are often and unwilling to challenge homophobia, transphobia and biphobia as well. That's right. A lot of those um, sort of religiously run organisations get a bit of a free pass because of the, the good work that they do sometimes do. Um, but I guess it, it's sort of it's, it's good that the podcast um, helps to problematise in some people's minds the roles of religious organisations in the youth homelessness or the homelessness space um, and the, the way that they're overrepresented in the care space. Thanks, Jackson. Um, so um, so that's, that's something that's covered in the first episode. Um, what can we look forward to in future episodes of the Youth Homelessness Podcast? Uh, hopefully a more in-depth look at some of these issues, expanding on some of the topics and unpacking everything in a bit more detail. That's right. And um, do, do we have a date for the next um, episode coming out? We don't yet. No, no. So it's still in production then. And so that's why people should subscribe right now. You can subscribe all sorts of platforms, can't you? I've, I've been accessing it through the website, but um, do you know if it's accessible uh, through like iTunes and stuff? Yeah, the website's probably the best point of call. And mm. then you can have a look at any of the links there and see what other formats it's available in. That's right. Uh, so uh, what's, what's the website? Can you remind us? Um, yep, it's linked to from Drummond Street website as well yes yep um, right. which i believe is ds.org.au i think yep that's right <laughs> yeah yeah okay um but in any case look up um youth homelessness podcast they've also got a facebook page so if folks listening at home uh want to get connected or even get involved there's um there are contact details on the on the facebook page look up youth homelessness podcast um uh, I've been uh, speaking over the phone to Kohava Lilit, who's one of the voices from the Youth Homelessness Podcast. Um, and Kohava, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock, and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers, and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. (laughs) Good to hear from Rod this morning. You are listening to 3CR, which I don't need to tell you because you tuned your own radio, I'm sure. Uh, And... This morning we're joined by Dave Kerrin. Dave is a founding brain behind uh, Earthworker Energy Cooperative, which is building solar hot water heaters in Latrobe Valley, aiming to employ many of those who have lost their jobs through the closure of Hazelwood and the general transition and disruption that is industry around the country at the moment, with the inevitable shift towards renewables and the ever-present march of technological change. So Dave joins us this morning to talk about the importance of ethical jobs for our workers and communities. One reaction of government over the last few years to the change just described has been to invest heavily in defence, or as I like to call them, offensive contracts, building frigates in Perth, submarines in Adelaide, and now tanks in Fisherman's Bend in Melbourne. Dave, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Jackson. G'day, Will. So, Dave, what do you know about the proposal to build 225 tanks at Fisherman's Bend in the old Holden plant? Uh, not a lot of the detail. I mean, it'd be, uh, I think, uh, commercial inconfidence, which is the great destroyer of democratic government. But, um, uh, yeah, I think my understanding is they're armoured vehicles um, and, of course, the subs in South Australia. Uh, there's a, there is a big push on, there's no doubt about it, um, in, into the military industries. Um, Christopher Pines made it very clear, even union side, <clears throat> on our side of the fence, there's, there's, there's some confusion, um, in some instances I believe great confusion, as to whether this is the, you know, the future that our, our country uh, needs or indeed morally should take. Mm. Um, you know, it's an end game. Uh, the military is the largest industry in the world today. It's the great driver within the global economy. Uh, of course, that results inevitably um, in permanent war. Without that, you've no place to sell the goods. So for us to be um, feeding the war machine and killing our brothers and sisters overseas uh, on the basis of false divisions around ethnicity and culture and colour and, and, and all of the historical you know, ways in which humankind's been divided... Um, is criminal. And what impact do you think it has on workers? Like if you go to work and build a tank as opposed to going to work and build a train, what what kind of impact do you think that has on the, on the people doing the productive labour? Well, you know, like um, dare I say it, I mean, I'm a, uh, 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 these days it's unpopular to say, but I'm a rusted on old red, you know. And, uh, it's coming back, Helen Razor. Uh, is it? Yeah, she's <laughs> leading the charge. Actually, I got a book. It's very good, I should say, especially for the young ones out there. Have a read if you have. Mm. Um, uh, you know, um, sorry, I'm old. Can you ask me that again? I, I got lost in my own bloody... So well, how do you think it impacts on workers, yeah, building weapons of war yeah. as opposed to building uh, productive things for society? Well, I was going to say about Marx that, you know, the, the basis of Marxism is that you become what you do, you know. Um, the way in which we meet our needs is what we become and, and, and our culture and, 
and, and uh, you know, the decisions we make, etc., grow out of and in and around that process because, of course, it takes the bulk of your day and, and a lot of your evening energy as well to, 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 to meet those needs. And if, indeed, you're meeting your needs on the basis of the fact that you're creating, um, you know, goods that kill... Mm. Uh, I- inevitably, that that affects people, you know. And uh, oh yeah, like I mean, you can't you can't separate. You can't just say, well, we just provide the shells, or you know, the shell casing, or or the uniforms, or you know, this is this is far more than that. This is life and death on a massive scale now, right across the Middle East, Africa, um, you know, everywhere. The, the containment of China, uh, our subs are going to be used in that, um, with hundreds of bases now aimed at China. Mm. Um, hence, in the you know the, the South China Sea, them creating islands that that will be like a defensive first stage. So you know this spiralic downturn. This it's, it's a devolutionary spiral. Mm. Um, you know where those parts of our nature, um, our, our, our being, are being misused in the in the in the process of of meeting our needs in a very narrow consumer sense. Mm. A friend of mine who was a big uh, World War II buff once said to me, if you build a big enough military, you either have to use it or it turns against you. you know? And we've seen a build-up of armaments across all the major powers for decades now. You know, I, I was reading the week that uh, arms sales to Saudi Arabia have increased dramatically since they changed their leadership. He's acting pretty aggressively. Uh, anyway, that's a bit of a side issue. Let's talk about the hopeful aspect of this. What could governments be investing in instead? I mean, I know $5 billion for armoured reconnaissance vehicles is hard to compete against, but what are some alternative ways to um, grow the manufacturing industry and other industries in general? I mean, tell us a bit about what you're doing with Earthworker Energy. What kind of jobs are you making there? So we're we're focused especially on on manufacturing, on uh, you know reintroducing uh, the the capacity in this country to make the things that the country needs, mm. um, and, and that is especially of course around renewable and sustainable goods. Um, yeah, the, the the energy producing goods and the energy saving goods. Uh, given that we are now in the midst uh, of the climate emergency. Um, that's that's imperative. So if we go back again to the way in which we meet our needs, how do we? What are the needs? How are they defined? Well, they're defined by circumstance. And at the moment, the circumstances we are in and the ones we face further down the track, um, you know, are are run run the risk of mass extinctions. So that has to be the defining need. And so the goods we need to create. Um, are unfortunately in contradiction to the the, the needs that narrow neoliberal capital has it's got its primary um, investments in the big four you know fossil fuel petrochem plastics and military so you know they're not going to pull those out in time and and invest them on a large enough scale to kick this off so we have to look at what else is out there well there's the working class and in the first world countries the working class now has amassed uh, enormous amounts of capital workers' capital in the form of superannuation or what they call in America pension funds. It underpins most of our banks. It does indeed. Um, you know, in the 70 percentile of our of the capital invested in this country is our super. So our money. Our money. Which we're rarely re- reminded of. Exactly right, and it's never put in that way. So, you know, that's a post-capitalist world. It, it's, it's not socialist, um, but the socialised capital is being used in the interests of private um, you know, the private owners mm. uh, who are becoming a narrower and narrower section of far less than the 1% now uh, of humankind. Mm. 
So but that, that, on the other hand, represent if we can have the right discussion in the right way and talk about it as it actually is rather than as it's being used, mm. um, then, then there's a massive capacity there for working class communities here and globally to come together and, and to make fairly rapid uh, changes and turnarounds. Now, what, what should be the social model for that? Well, we've argued that socialised capital should be invested in a social sector of the economy based around cooperatives and mutuals. So, you know, that's, that's our push. We, we, we want to see the development of that sector of the economy. Uh, you know, neoliberals are always on about choice. Well, let's have a fair income choice. Let, let's have a choice between meeting our real needs and uh, as distinct from meeting the needs of the military and so forth. So as a good example, right now, you can't open the paper without looking at the cost of power, the mm. cost of um, heating your home, heating your hot water, cooking your food. Mm. You know, everybody's, you know, seen a, a massive increase. Mm. Something that I know, the first product that uh, one of these new forms of cooperatives, Earthworker Energy is planning to make, is solar hot water pumps, mm-hmm. which will, you know, simultaneously create a manufacturing industry, but also create a cheap form of renewable hot water service for the workers that build that product. Is that kind of what you're talking about, that yep. you, you direct this investment from superannuation, you take that money and you invest it in something rather than a tank, you build something useful, whether it's a wind turbine or a, um, a solar hot water pump? Indeed, and, and, and every time we've gone anywhere near superannuation, they say we're too small. So, you know, big ideas always start off small. Um, we're too small, they, they can't invest that small because they won't get the return as distinct from if they invested in, you know, one of the other big four um, industries or connected industries. So there right away is a problem. You know, how, how do we begin this process? You know, this has never been done before. Uh, what I say, when I say that, I mean, what is this? Well, this is not just co-ops and mutuals. But looking at the market as well, looking at, at creating a socialised or collective market alongside the socialised collective capital, which is investing in the socialised ownership model, the co-ops. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea of a socialised market or collective market is that uh, when we looked around and we thought, well, OK, the working class is there, our capital is there, um, but we also represent a massive social weight on the economy. If we let me give you a classic example, one of the things that led to Earthworker was in the seven in the building industry, we ran a, a Bluey's boots and overalls campaign, protective clothing against the winter. Yeah, and the Bluey company was nearly broke in Tasmania. When we run our campaign across construction, it became a multinational, and we no longer own it. So you know, there's, there's really interesting lessons in that. Mm. But it caused us to think, as younger men, then that that you know we can we can cause the economy to take a direction it wouldn't have otherwise taken. Mm. Now, when you think about that, if, if we provide the capacity within the enterprise agreements for workers to be able to collectively purchase the solar hot water, photovoltaic, battery storage, then we create that notion of, a, of, a, of a, a, an aware spend, a collective spend by working class people to create the things we really create need the and the jobs. Mm. And now, our, our co-ops are not for profit because the profit for us is the job. Mm. Yeah. So, so 5% of everything we make goes into the community sector. So we've already put solar hot water in, you know, Father Bob Maguire houses, hospices, that sort of thing, because we're saying government is walking away from welfare state in the community sector. We want to make sure that as we grow this social sector, it is linked in lockstep with the community sector. David, it's a fascinating conversation. I think it's one we could have for a lot longer. Unfortunately, mm. we're out of time. Um, no thank worries. you very much for joining us this morning. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.